Under Vladimir Putin, Russia has become one of the most repressive countries in the world. Independent journalists, political dissidents, and peaceful protesters regularly face censorship, government harassment, and intimidation. Last year, Putin sent assassins to poison opposition leader Alexei Navalny. Navalny's escape and subsequent imprisonment highlight the danger of dissent in Russia today. Other dissidents, like Boris Nemtsov, have not been so fortunate. Welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a series of conversations by the Human Rights Foundation dedicated to exposing and challenging authoritarianism around the world. In this episode, HRF International Legal Associate Michelle Golino speaks with Russian pro-democracy activist and opposition leader Vladimir Karamursa about government repression in Putin's Kafkaesque Russia. Karamursa has also been the target of two attempted assassinations for his outspoken views on Putin's dictatorship. Throughout this conversation, he details the methods and aims of Putin's repressive apparatus and how democratic leaders can help support Russian civil society. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Dissidents and Dictators, a weekly conversation series during which we expose dictators, debate pressing global human rights issues, and brainstorm how together we can put human rights at the top of the world's agenda. My name is Michelle Golino, and I'm the International Legal Associate at the Human Rights Foundation. And for those listening who may not be familiar with our organization, the Human Rights Foundation is a nonprofit organization that promotes freedom and democracy, primarily in countries under authoritarian rule. Part of our work is in supporting activists at the front line of human rights issues. And one of the ways we give a platform to these activists is through the annual Oslo Freedom Forum, which is a global conference series where activists, dissidents, and many others share their stories and connect with people who share an interest in advancing human rights. And so we have our club here on Clubhouse called the Oslo Freedom Forum. So if you haven't already, please do join. And if you have some time to spare, please check out our main website, hrf.org, and our conference website, which is oslofreedomforum.com, to learn more and see how you can attend one of our regional events. Today, we are very honored to be joined by our guest and a former Oslo, Oslo Freedom Forum speaker himself, Vladimir Karmursa. Vladimir is a Russian pro-democracy activist, opposition leader, journalist, and historian, and he's vice president of the Free Russia Foundation and chairs the Boris Nemtsov Foundation for Freedom, which is named in honor of his colleague, Russian opposition leader Boris Nemtsov, who was assassinated in 2015. And Vladimir has also been targeted by Putin's regime, having been twice poisoned and most recently faced arrest and a sham trial in Russia. He was also a former candidate for the Russian State Duma and has played a key role in passing Magnitsky legislation around the world to impose targeted sanctions on human rights violators. So, Vladimir, thank you so much for taking time to join us this week during what I know is an incredibly busy time for you and, and everyone who joins your pro-democracy cause in Russia. So today we'll be talking about the rise of repression in Russia under Putin, about Vladimir's experience of this treatment firsthand, and how the West can support the birth of a new Russia and protect political prisoners by curtailing Putin's kleptocracy. But uh, just before we turn to those issues, I, I just want to make a quick note that we know Clubhouse is a really great platform for facilitating discussions, but we also understand that there have been some recent privacy concerns related to the app. And so for that reason, 
we do caution anyone participating today that if you have security concerns, please use anonymity on your account profile. And if you do want to speak, you have the option of voicing your opinions without any personal identifiers. Um, another note is that unlike our prior Clubhouse discussions, or most of them, HRF will be recording only the first portion of today's conversation, but the Q&A portion uh, will not be recorded. So the, the title of our event today is Russia's Kafkaesque Repression. And Vladimir, we've, we've been seeing over the past year, and particularly since January of this year, some of the largest protests in Russia's history. And you've participated in these and directly witnessed the repression in response to both these protests and, and other forms of peaceful assembly. And I, I think perhaps a good way of giving our listeners an idea of the environment today in Russia that you're dealing with and the, the tactics that are used in an attempt to silence the democracy movement, I, I think a good way of going about that would be to hear about your recent experience with what you've called Kafkaesque proceedings. How did that play out for you in your recent arrest along with about, what, 150, 200 lawmakers and your subsequent trial? Uh, well, hello, Michelle, and, and thank you so much to you and to uh, Human Rights Foundation for hosting this uh, discussion. It's always good to be among friends from the Oslo Freedom Forum, and I very much look forward to uh, being back in Oslo at some point in real life, hopefully uh, before too long, uh, because for all of for all of these technical gadgets that have made our life so much more modern than everything else, I'm uh, I'm still a retrograde, and I think there's nothing quite like uh, good old-fashioned uh, personal human contact. So I think I speak for a lot of people when I say that I look forward to being able to uh, meet face-to-face -face in Oslo, hopefully later this year or the next. Um, thank you for choosing this title also. Kafkaesque, I think, is a very apt description uh, of the... Uh, system, the propaganda machine, just the environment that has been created in our country by Vladimir Putin's regime uh, to, uh, to, you know, to you refer to the um, events in the middle of March a few weeks ago when we organized a nationwide conference of opposition municipal lawmakers from across Russia. Uh, in Moscow, brought about 200 people from 56 different regions of Russia in an effort to sort of create some sort of coordination, some sort of a horizontal um, contacts between uh, opposition lawmakers from across the country. The municipal level, sort of the most local level of self-government in Russia, is really the last level uh, where some competition is still sometimes possible uh, at those local elections. And, and, and usually when opposition candidates uh, do make it onto the ballot, they score very impressive results. And so there are literally hundreds of uh, uh, elected opposition lawmakers at the municipal level across the country, which cannot be said either for the regional or certainly for the national level. Um, and so just as our historical predecessors in the early 20th century, the Zemstvo movement, uh, the brought together representatives of elected local self-government from across the Russian empire in the early 20th century in the lead up to the 1905 revolution, uh, our conference was an effort to coordinate uh, these these activities uh, across the country. But of course, the Kremlin um, realized that parallel too. So about 10 minutes into the conference, um, about 80 fully armed full gear uh, police officers came into the room. Uh, previously, as we later found out, they have encircled the hall even to block the fire exits to make sure that nobody could get out. Uh, and uh, the police colonel who sees the microphone while uh, former Ekaterinburg Mayor Evgeny Roisman was speaking, announced that um, our meeting was unlawful and that uh, every single person 
in the conference room uh, was being arrested. This was obviously met with laughter in the audience who were then all herded onto prisoner vans and taken around to different um, cells and police stations around the city of Moscow. And, you know, when we were being driven uh, to these police stations, sort of shared experiences among each other to see if anybody remembers uh, a case before when an entire conference hall was arrested and nobody could. So, so this was another yet another precedent that the Putin regime has created. But the sort of the Kafkaesque nature of this was that all of us, every single person in that room, was about 200 people, of which about 150 were incumbent elected lawmakers from across Russia, uh, was charged with um, a relatively new clause uh, in the Russian administrative code, uh, purely political clause, uh, that creates sort of a new misdemeanor of carrying out the activities of an undesirable organization. That's the language that, that's written in, into this new law. And so, you know, on this was on March 13th, uh, when incumbent elected Russian uh, municipal lawmakers were charged with carrying out the activities of an undesirable organization. And then just two days after that, on the 15th of March, Sergei Lavrov, the Russian foreign minister, hosted a delegation of Hezbollah, uh, a Shiite terrorist group, um, at the foreign ministry in Moscow. Uh, clearly, Hezbollah in the eyes of the Kremlin is not another desirable organization. That's okay. Not, not, the, uh, you know, not the Russian opposition. And just to take that parallel you know, to, a, to, to an even new level, just this week, um, the Russian authorities have officially outlawed all the organizations and structures and, and the movements uh, associated with imprisoned opposition leader Alexei Navalny, uh, labeling them as extremists uh, on the par with organizations that do actually carry out terrorist activities. So now in Vladimir Putin's Russia, just as in uh, Soviet times, oppos opposition activity, uh, political activity, peaceful, legitimate political activity in opposition to the ruling regime uh, is considered to be a crime. You know, you almost don't know whether to laugh or, or cry listening to that account. Uh, but we're certainly. I think we have to do both because the sense yeah. of humor is the sense of humor is uh, right. sort of one of the last lines of self-defense against regimes like that. You know, the the best period in our history, when we had sort of the best jokes and the best anecdotes, was in the Soviet Union when people had no freedom of speech and when the media were all subject to state censorship and state propaganda. Uh, people sort of tried to escape from that by making up these political jokes. And you know, U.S. President Ronald Reagan famously collected these Soviet jokes and these Soviet anecdotes. And every time he would meet with another dissident from the Soviet Union, he would eagerly ask for, for what the latest political jokes are. I mean, we, we, we are coming back to that era now once again. Well, we're certainly grateful for, for your release and safety. And I mean, Russian history does seem to, if not repeat itself entirely, maybe come in these corresponding and strikingly reminiscent waves. Um, you know, the last time we saw an arrest, arrest this large of Russian lawmakers was in 1918, uh, when the Bolsheviks disbanded what was the democratically elected Constitu constituent assembly. So generally speaking, is, is the scale of repression and also of propaganda different in Russia today under Putin in the midst of this closing space you've described? Or are things simply operating at a different level now? Well, this is, of course, a totally different reality from the one we had in, uh, in the Soviet times. Uh, in some cases, it is actually worse. You know, if you think back to, well, of course, I'm not talking about the Stalin era when millions of people were 
or eliminated and, and, and executed under what was one of the most barbaric and murderous regimes in the history of the world. But if we take the so-called vegetarian Soviet period, sort of the, the more quote-unquote liberal phase of the Soviet system, uh, after Stalin, sort of in the 70s and 80s, you know, in the 1970s and the 1980s, the leading, uh, the leading dissidents, the leading political opponents of the uh, Soviet regime were either in um, internal exile, like Andrei Sakharov, in external exile, like Alexander Solzhenitsyn, or in prison, uh, like Vladimir Bukovsky. Today, uh, one leading political opponent of the Putin regime, former Deputy Prime Minister Boris Nemtsov, is dead, having been gunned down literally under the Kremlin walls in February of 2015. This was the most high-profile, the most brazen political assassination in the modern history of Russia. And another uh, leading opponent of the Kremlin, anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny, just a few months ago, uh, survived a state-sponsored chemical weapons attack um, that was carried out by officers of the Russian Federal Security Service, the FSB, the main domestic successor to the KGB. Of course, after the Kremlin failed um, to kill Alexei Navalny, they have imprisoned him. And uh, uh, this week actually marked 100 days uh, of Navalny's unlawful imprisonment. And again, just to add to the sort of to, to harp back to the title of our conversation today, uh, to this Kafkaesque nature. I don't know if it's more Kafkaesque or Orwellian, but it, it's, I think it's certainly a little bit of both. Uh, but, uh, you know, Navalny is currently in prison uh, in a penal colony uh, number two in Pakrov and Vladimir region, about uh, 400 kilometers northeast of, of, of Moscow, um, under verdict that had already been ruled unlawful by the European Court of Human Rights. And by the way, the Russian government accepted the decision because they paid out the compensation. And the specific reason why Alexei Navalny's conditional sentence, as it was before, was transformed into a real prison term was because he did not come to register with his parole officer last autumn, as he was required to under the, under the rules of the conditional sentence. But of course, the reason that he didn't come to register with his parole officer was that he was lying in a coma in a hospital in Berlin after being poisoned by the Russian government. You know, I think Franz Kafka would have been ashamed of himself. His talent had nothing on what the reality is today in Russia under Vladimir Putin. You mentioned Navalny and, and part of this absurd, unprecedented, unprecedented crackdown we've been talking about is, of course, the existence of professional assassin squads in the year 2021, right? And just a few months ago in February, investigative journalists at Bellingcat, uh, in partnership with Der Spiegel and The Insider, they published the results of their extensive investigation into your two near-fatal poisonings. Um, to be precise, they were in both 2015 and in 2017. And for those who have not read this incredible report, I, I really encourage you to go to Bellingcat's website to read the full findings that reveal evidence that your poisonings were in fact carried out by the FSB, by Russia's Federal Security Service. And you expressed at the time of the report's release that you had kind of mixed emotions, that it's it's one thing to just realize and be aware of the fact that someone has actually tried to kill you, but it's really quite another when you, you personally see the names and, and the photos of the people who attempted to do this. And in fact, you even went a step further and you called one of your would-be assassins. So what has it been like processing 
all of this information over, over the past few months. And can you share with us the maybe mental hoops and hurdles you've gone through in light of these findings? Well, I probably don't have enough words in any language that I know to express the range of emotions I felt when, when I was shown the findings of this investigation. And I only saw them just a few hours before they were published. So about the same time as everybody else. It, it is actually very different. You know, on the one hand, just knowing intellectually that someone's tried to kill you, and it, there was never any doubt from the very beginning. I, I knew that this was a state-sponsored attack. I knew that the goal was to kill, not to not to scare. Because, you know, when, both times when I was lying in a coma uh, in a Moscow hospital after the poisonings, uh, doctors told my wife that I had a 5% chance to live. That, that's not that's not how, how to scare someone. Um, and, and, of course, I knew also that the reason for both of these uh, uh, murder attempts was my long-time involvement in, in international advocacy and work on the Magnitsky sanctions, you know, targeted uh, Western sanctions against uh, senior officials and oligarchs of the Putin regime, you know, the, uh, the, the senior human rights abusers in, in Mr. Putin's close circle. But it's one thing to sort of know this and understand this intellectually, but it's very different when they actually show you the faces and the names. Um, the, the, the first thing that struck me was, I think it was Hannah Arendt, uh, the historian who who said that phrase, the, the banality of evil. Uh, this was sort of the, the first thought that came to, to my mind as I saw the photographs of these uh, FSB murderers. Um, you know, just normal, regular faces of the kind I see every day in the streets of Moscow. Uh, and just to think that these people are, as you said, uh, professional assassins in the employment of the state. You know, sometimes it's worth just actually taking a step back and saying to, to oneself, that, you know, we're, we're so used to this reality, we're living in it. But sometimes it's just worth making a pause and saying that in a 21st century, in a European country, there is a professional squad of assassins in the employment of the state whose job, whose task it is to physically eliminate opponents of Vladimir Putin. Uh, and there have been several investigations um, led by Bellingcat, uh, including on several cases where they did succeed. The people who are not as fortunate as Alexei Navalny and myself, who were actually killed by these FSB officers. Uh, in the case of uh, Alexei Navalny and me, uh, the, uh, so two of the FSB officers are the same. Uh, two of them match. In fact, those are the people from the chemical weapons uh, division of the, of the FSB, the Russian Federal Security Services. The, the banality of evil, that was, that, was, that was my first thought. You know, what do these people talk about it family dinner table every evening. What, what do their kids ask them? You know, Daddy, how many people have you poisoned today? I mean, it's just, just absolutely, it's absolutely mind-boggling. Um, and also, I would, just, I would just say that on, on an emotional level, uh, when, when Bellingcat and the insiders showed me these findings, so they found um, that these four FSB officers um, uh, had followed me on seven different uh, trips around the regions of Russia, uh, everywhere from... Kaliningrad to uh, Nizhny Novgorod, to Tomsk, St. Petersburg. Um, and um, in the months and, and weeks leading up to, to both poisonings, including the first time I was poisoned in May of 2015, uh, two of these officers were with me in the city of Kazan in Tatarstan, just 48 hours before uh, I, ended, I ended up in intensive care uh, in a coma. So it was absolutely clear that that was, that, that, that was where they did it the first time. And two of these FSB officers came from the 
Division for the Protection of Constitutional Order at the FSB. Uh, and two other ones, the ones who actually did the poisoning, came from the Criminology Institute at the FSB. And, you know, again, going back to whether it's more Kafka and Orwell, this, this really is Orwellian this time, because, you know, you remember in Orwell's novel 1984, there was the Ministry of uh, Peace that waged wars. There was the Ministry of Truth that engaged in propaganda and so on. Uh, so today in Russia, under Vladimir Putin, we have the FSB Directorate for the Protection of Constitutional Order that organizes political assassinations and the FSB Criminology Institute that is supposed to detect and counteract the use of chemical weapons actually itself uses prohibited chemical weapons to go after political opponents uh, of, of Vladimir Putin. Um, as soon as the findings were published, um, I went together with my lawyer, Vadim Prokhorov, to the Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation, which is sort of the top law enforcement body in the Russian government, uh, to file criminal charges against these four specific FSB officers. We had filed them before, uh, not specifically, obviously, because we didn't know the precise people, but I did make two requests for a criminal investigation into attempted murder, both in 2015 and 2017. To this day, I have not received a response to, to either of them. But now, of course, thanks to the amazing work by Bellingcat and the Insider, we know that identities of the FSB officers who, who are carrying out these uh, political murders and attempted murders under Vladimir Putin. So in February of this year, I filed uh, specific criminal charges over attempted murder against these four FSB officers. Uh, Russian law gives 30 days for government agencies to respond. We are now at the end of April. So far, nothing. Um, we'll probably wait a few more weeks, after which uh, we will, of course, be taking this matter to the courts. Again, I think everybody understands the nature of the court system under Vladimir Putin in Russia today. So the only place to find justice will be the European Court of Human Rights. Thankfully, Russia is still a member of the Council of Europe. This is the last remaining vestige of our brief period of democracy in the 1990s. And so every Russian citizen has a right to appeal to the European Court of Human Rights uh, in, in the final attempt to find justice that is impossible to find domestically. And so I, I, I will, of course, be taking... Uh, the, this poisoning matter, these two attempted murders to the European Court of Human Rights, because in this case, we are speaking about two attempts to violate the most important right guaranteed by the European Convention, and that is the right to life, Article 2. I mean, I, I hope justice is found for that because it's it's just so incredible and truly Orwellian, as you said. And of course, Alexei Navalny, as you mentioned, also survived a chemical agent attack just last year and has now ended his prison hunger strike. But we're still almost witnessing what, what could be a very public and very painful death in prison after the failed attempt to do so through poisoning. And of course, we, we've already seen this scenario play out with Sergei Magnitsky, the man for whom the Magnitsky Act sanctions law is named, uh, which you mentioned. So it's it's clear that Russian authorities are certainly not seeking to act in any positive manner of their own free will to end what is being called deliberate torture. But what can leaders of democratic nations do to de-escalate this situation to save Navalny and, and advocate for all of Russia's political prisoners, a number which you know, we understand to be at least several hundred? 378, this is the latest figure, uh, as verified by the Memorial Human Rights Center, which is a leading human rights organization in Russia. And they approach this in a very strict, very conservative fashion. So 
this 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 is a severe underestimate this figure because uh, this list only includes cases that have been studied in detail and vetted by memorial and also only those uh, who correspond to the very strict definition of a political prisoner as established by the Council of Europe and endorsed by the Organization for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So in effect, the legal definition of what a political prisoner is, that's a very strict term if you read that resolution. It's resolution 1900 passed in 2012 by the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe. The actual figure is much higher, but even, but even this number is shocking. Uh, again, we are talking about the year 2021. We're talking about a European country, signature to the European Convention of Human Rights. 378 people who are imprisoned, incarcerated, having committed no crime, except uh, you know, having the tenacity to oppose the regime of Vladimir Putin. Just to put things in context, in January 1987, during the Vienna meeting of the Conference on Security and Cooperation in Europe, the Soviet government admitted to holding about 200 political prisoners. That was an underestimate too, but so is this one. And we see that the number of political prisoners under Vladimir Putin in Russia is already double what it was in the waning years of the Soviet Union. Uh, you're asking what can the leaders of Western democracies do? Urban Kotler, a uh, great Canadian uh, lawyer, advocate, human rights activist, uh, founder of the Canadian Helsinki Watch Group, former Minister of Justice in, of Canada, uh, and a very prominent advocate for political prisoners worldwide, from Nelson Mandela to Anatoly Sharansky, once wrote that a political prisoner's worst nightmare is to be forgotten. So the main thing that the democratic world, the democratic community, can do for political prisoners in Russia, and for that matter in any other authoritarian regime that holds political prisoners, is not to forget them and not to allow those regimes to pretend to forget them. These names, these cases have to be voiced at every high level summit, at every international meeting, at parliamentary hearings, at conferences, you know, from television screens and, 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 and newspaper pages. This, this is the only thing uh, that can work. Public spotlight uh, is the only protection in these situations. We know this from uh, our experience during the Soviet period when even at that time, several leading prisoners of conscience were released thanks to high-level personal advocacy on the part of the leaders of Western democracies uh, on both sides of the Atlantic. And we also um, saw this recently in, in years under Putin. I mean, the two of perhaps two of the most prominent political prisoners um, under Putin in Russia before Alexei Navalny were Mikhail Khodorkovsky, uh, an oil tycoon who, who uh, had the tenacity to publicly accuse the Putin regime of corruption, and uh, Oleg Sentsov, uh, a Ukrainian film director who, who, for his part, had the tenacity to oppose Putin's annexation of Crimea. Um, everybody thought, and this includes me, I, I, was, I was certain, as, as I know what almost everybody, everybody I know in Russia, that in their own time, Khodorkovsky and Sentsov would stay in prison for as long as Putin stays in the Kremlin. And yet both are free men now because of direct high-level personal advocacy. In the case of Mikhail Khodorkovsky, it was Angela Merkel, the Chancellor of Germany. In the case of Oleg Sentsov, uh, it was uh, Emmanuel Macron, uh, the President of France. 378 political prisoners in Russia today, including Alexei Navalny, most prominently now, including Alexei Pechugin, the longest-serving political prisoner in Russia who's been incarcerated for 18 years. 
a horrible, a horrible number, a frightening number, 18 years since 2003, despite winning two cases at the European Court of Human Rights against the Russian government that have just been ignored by the Russian government. He's still in prison, the last remaining prisoner of the Yukos case. Uh, Yuri Dmitriev, uh, a prominent historian, one of the leaders of Memorial, who has dedicated his life to documenting the uh, mass repression and extrajudicial executions carried out under the Stalin regime in the Soviet Union. Uh, he was recently handed a 13-year prison sentence on trumped-up false charges, uh, which, given his age and his health, is essentially equivalent to a death sentence. And dozens and dozens and hundreds and hundreds of more. We would spend, I don't know, more than an hour here if I were just to sort of tell you about each of the cases, even briefly in a couple of words. And so the only thing now in the reality that we're living in that can help, in, in many cases, save the lives of these people is high-level personal advocacy. There's a lot of talk in the last few days about an upcoming summit uh, between Joe Biden, the US president, and, and Kremlin dictator Vladimir Putin. Um, well, first of all, I think it's, it's a really bad idea for the leaders of Western democracies to legitimize dictatorships by granting them such public high-level meetings. But if this summit does go ahead and does take place, I think that the very least that the US president can do is secure the release of several political prisoners, prisoners of conscience, as American presidents of both parties had done previously, starting with Richard Nixon and Jared Ford, Jimmy Carter, most prominently Ronald Reagan, who would begin every summit meeting with Soviet leaders by putting down a list of prisoners of conscience on the table and demanding their release. And he did secure the release of several prominent Soviet political prisoners, including Yuri Orlov and Anatoly Sharansky. This is what needs to happen now again. And this goes not only for the United States, but for other uh, democratic nations as well. And you've, of course, been one of the major champions of the Magnitsky Act, which places targeted sanctions on the architects of corruption and serious human rights abuses. Um, and we were pleased to see recently that the UK announced sanctions against the perpetrators from the Magnitsky case. But we've also seen some say that sanctions don't go far enough, right? You know, we've seen a number of sanctions now, yet abuses are still being perpetrated. So what kind of pressure is most effective in curbing these abuses and making the Kremlin take notice once and for all? Well, sanctions only work if they're targeted at the right people. Uh, and, you know, let's start from the, from the beginning here. The reason the Magnitsky Act was so important is because for years and years, there was this absolutely intolerable and mind-boggling situation where you had the same people, you know, senior officials and oligarchs of the Putin regime, who abused and undermined the most basic norms of democratic society at home in Russia, but who really liked to enjoy the benefits and the privileges of democratic society in Western countries. Because it's in the West where they all have their second homes, their bank accounts, their wives, their mistresses, where they spend their holidays, their shopping trips, and so on. You know, these people essentially have made a habit of stealing in Russia from our people in Russia and then stashing away that loot in Western jurisdictions. And so many Western leaders were okay with that. You know, it's been said that the largest export from the Putin regime to the West is not oil or gas, it is corruption. And, and that sentiment is absolutely true, except of course that is a two-way street. And for someone to be able to export corruption, someone else somewhere needs to be willing to import it. And we have seen no shortage of Western governments, Western banks, Western financial institutions, Western real estate markets, and so on, who are all too happy to look the other way and welcome these corrupt individuals 
and their dirty money. And this is what the Magnitsky Act was designed to stop. The premise behind the Magnitsky Act uh, was very simple. Those individuals who are based on obviously credible and verifiable evidence are personally complicit in human rights abuses and corruption in their own countries will no longer be able to receive visas, own assets, and use the financial and banking system of the country that passes this legislation. Boris Nemtsov, who played an absolutely instrumental role in convincing the American Congress more than a decade ago to pass uh, the Magnitsky Act, has called it the most pro-Russian law ever passed in a foreign country because it targets those individuals who abuse the rights of Russian citizens and who steal the money of Russian taxpayers. And what's very important is the targeted nature of these sanctions. You know, back in, in the 70s and 80s in the previous historic, uh, historical eras, sanctions would target entire countries and entire peoples. And this, first of all, in my view, is fundamentally unfair. Why should all citizens of a, of a country be held responsible for the actions of a small unelected clique at the top? Uh, but also very often these general sanctions are counterproductive because they offer dictatorships sort of an easy explanation uh, of the problems that are actually caused by their own mismanagement and their own policies. Uh, but they sort of blame it all away on, on the West. These sanctions, the targeted sanctions, the absolute brilliance of them, the, the absolutely revolutionary nature of the Magnitsky Act was that it actually leveled sanctions at the people who deserved them. And um, I'm proud uh, of, of the small part that I played in the last decade or more now uh, in, in international advocacy in support of these sanctions mechanism. I'm proud to say that now, not only the United States, but also the United Kingdom, Canada, the Baltic states, and the entirety of the European Union as of last December have these mechanisms on the books. But it's not enough to have those mechanisms on the books. They have to be implemented. They have to actually work in practice. Um, just before the new year, uh, shortly before he went back home to Russia to be arrested, Alexei Navalny and I testified before the European Parliament's Foreign Affairs Committee. And, and one of the questions that the members of Parliament asked was, you know, why aren't sanctions as effective as they could be? The same questions, Michelle, that you are asking. And um, both of us responded that, that it's because you're not targeting the right people. It's because these sanctions are not targeted at the people, well, first of all, who should be targeted because they deserve it. But secondly, are the people who should be targeted because they are the people who oil the wheels of this authoritarian kleptocracy built by Vladimir Putin. In January, before his return to Moscow, Alexei Navalny made up a list, which his team later published, uh, that contains 35 key figures in the Putin regime, both security officials, government officials, and crucially oligarchs, those very kleptocrats that form the essence of the system, who should be targeted uh, for visa and financial sanctions uh, by Western countries. You know, names such as Raman Abramovich and Alisher Usmanov and Igor Sechin and Gennady Timchenko and Alexei Miller and many, many others. Astonishingly, to this day, we are now, you know, this is almost May, right at the end of April. Most of these people are still freely able to travel on both sides of the Atlantic. And that is absolutely mind-boggling and that is absolutely intolerable. And that is the answer to your question, Michelle, why they haven't been as effective as they could have been. Because they are not targeted at the right level and they should be. Uh, and, and I think it's very important for those principled uh, statespeople and political leaders on both sides of the Atlantic uh, to work towards making sure that this enabling and this tacit complicity by the West in the corruption, authoritarianism and kleptocracy of the Putin regime is finally put to an end. 
Well, we're certainly proud of and grateful for the Magnitsky work you've done globally. And I do want to turn to questions from our audience in just a moment. So anyone listening who has a question for Vladimir, please do raise your hand now to queue up and we'll bring you onto the stage. Uh, but first, Vladimir, one more question just to close out this segment. Given the the picture you've painted for us today of Putin's Russia, the scale of repression, the Kafkaesque proceedings, Orwellian nature that you described, I, I think this is something maybe a lot of people might be thinking, even though, you know, we may actually probably even know the answer to this, but why continue to willingly return to Russia and, and go back into this situation again, knowing the potential consequences? Well, this is probably the easiest answer I can give you throughout our whole conversation, because I'm a Russian politician, and a Russian politician's place is in Russia. You know, I think one of the biggest gifts, the biggest gift that those of us who oppose Putin's regime could give it would be to, to leave and go abroad. That's, in fact, what they want from us. In fact, back from the Soviet times, from the 1970s, when Yuri Andropov was head of the Soviet KGB, the authorities came to a very clear conclusion that the most effective way for them to silence political opponents, to silence dissidents, was not by imprisoning them or arresting them or putting them in psychiatric hospitals, all of which they also did, uh, of course, as well, but it was to send them out abroad to the West. Because once a political opponent is outside of his or her own country, this is at least certainly true in the case of Russia. Uh, other situations may be different, but I'm speaking about Russia here. Once a political opponent is, out, is outside of their country, they very quickly lose not only the sort of everyday sense of reality, but much more importantly, they lose the moral credibility and the moral right to continue. And, and the, the Kremlin is, is very clear in its understanding of that. And this is why from the mid-1970s, the Soviet regime began to expel dissidents in a sort of a conveyor fashion, starting famously with Alexander Solzhenitsyn in 1974, and then with Vladimir Bukovsky, Alexander Ginsburg, Yuri Arlov, and many, many other prominent figures in a dissident movement. Um, the biggest gift those of us who oppose Putin's regime could give to the Kremlin would be to go away, and we are not going to do that. Russia is my country. I love my country. I care about the future of my country. I think my country deserves better than to be living under a corrupt authoritarian kleptocracy. And there are millions of people, we know this, there are millions of people across Russia who share our vision, who want Russia to become, in the words of Alexei Navalny in his, one of his interviews last year, a normal European country. We see tens of thousands of people braving arrests and threats and police batons to go out onto the streets to demonstrate and protest, as, as we did again just last Wednesday, uh, all across Russia, from the Baltic to the Pacific. And so that's not really a question I even ever asked myself. I mean, I knew as soon as I was physically able to walk, uh, after, after more or less recovered after both poisonings, uh, after medical rehabilitation abroad, I went straight back to the plane and went straight back to Russia. That, that was not even a question of my mind. You know, when Alexei Navalny woke up from his coma in Berlin last September, and one of the first things he said uh, was that he's going to go back as soon as he's physically able to, I was literally inundated by calls from mostly Western journalists asking me to comment on this sensation, as they put it, to which I am sort of really surprised at first when I was asked this. And I said that not only don't I see any kind of sensation, I don't see any kind of news here. Of course, he's going to go back. He's a Russian politician. Where else can he be except Russia? And, you know, this is even in sort of small tacit messages that the regime conveys this. And of, and of course, uh, as you know, 
the Kremlin announced new criminal cases against Alexei Navalny while he was in Germany, with the goal that he does not return for that same reason I already enumerated. You know, every time I return home to Moscow, I go through passport control and I spend, I don't know, 30 or 40 minutes standing in front of that border officer. They always call somewhere, they always run away to speak to somebody, they look in horror at the computer screen. I mean, I'd give a lot to see what they have about me on that computer screen, but I can't because it's turned the other way. Uh, well, eventually, of course, they stab my passport. How, what else can they do? You know, I'm a Russian citizen returning to Russia. But every time um, I fly out, um, again, just a few days ago, I'm, I'm, I'm outside Russia for a few days now. Um, every time I fly out, five seconds, Stam, get out of here. Well, we're not going to. And we know there are millions of people in Russia who are like-minded, who reject, fundamentally reject Putinism and Putin and everything they stand for, and who want Russia to become a decent, normal, modern European country. And so for their sake, we have no right to even think about leaving. And so uh, that's probably the easiest question uh, I could answer of our whole conversation today. Well, we're so grateful for your resolve to to keep going back and continue leading this movement. Vladimir, just before we wrap up, are there any final calls to action or any final messages that you have for everyone tuning in today? I would just say that, you know, we've been talking about specific policies and, and, and actions and, and, and things that could be done uh, sort of a, on, a, on a level of government to government relations. But I think sometimes symbols can be no less important than uh, specific actions. When Nelson Mandela was uh, in prison at Robben Island during the apartheid era, uh, Glasgow City Council in the UK voted to name a square in front of the South African consulate as Nelson Mandela Place. Um, after the Soviet government sent Andrei Sakharov, leading dissident, into internal exile in Gorky uh, in, in the beginning of the 1980s, Washington, D.C. Uh, legislated to name a portion of a street in front of the then Soviet embassy as Andrei Sakharov Plaza. It's still called that today. It's in front of the current uh, Russian ambassador's residence. In February 2015, when Boris Nemtsov, the Russian opposition leader, was murdered under the Kremlin walls. The Kremlin didn't stop fighting him. Astonishingly, they're continuing to fight his memory. Once, uh, a few times every month, uh, they send the police and the communal services to the bridge where he was killed. But to this day, every single day, Muscovites leave fresh flowers and light candles in his memory to take away those flowers, to steal away those candles, to arrest the volunteers that have been standing guard. Time after time, the authorities have rejected petitions to install even a small memorial sign uh, on that spot. They've refused a moment of silence in parliament. They've refused to classify his murder as, as, as a political assassination. And the list could go on. Time after time, they've made it clear in the Kremlin that they will not allow us to commemorate a Russian statesman in Russia while these people remain in power. And so following on from those noble precedents that I mentioned with Mandela and Sakharov, and there are many others as well, um, we went a few years ago to municipal leaders, uh, lawmakers, uh, other political and, and public leaders in Western democracies to ask them to do what we for now are unable to do in our own country. And so as of today, I'm humbled and grateful and proud to say that as of today, four world capitals, Washington DC, Prague, Kiev and Vilnius have named squares in front of Russian embassies in those cities after Boris Nemtsov. And every time I participate in another unveiling, the first one was Boris Nemtsov Plaza in Washington, DC. If you go to the Russian embassy, that's the first sign you see right above the main gate. Every time I participate in these unveilings, I say that to me, as a Russian citizen, I can think of 
nothing more pro-Russian, no bigger gesture of solidarity with Russian society than to name a street in front of the Russian embassy after a Russian statesman. And I know one day my country will be proud. Sometimes it's such simple acts of commemoration that send huge messages of moral support and moral solidarity with those who are continuing to struggle for freedom in closed societies. And so I hope to see in coming years many more world capitals commemorate Boris Nemtsov, who in death, just as he was in life, remains a symbol of democratic resistance to Putin's authoritarianism. Um, and because I know that one day the Russian state will be proud uh, that our embassies in these leading world capitals are standing on streets named after Boris Nemtsov. And it takes committed local activists, grassroots organizing, NGOs, municipal leaders, elected lawmakers to make it happen as it already did in these four capital cities. And I hope that many more world cities will join that list in the coming months and coming years. That's a beautiful sentiment to close on. And I too hope that more cities will be participating in these gestures of solidarity. Vladimir, I, I thank you so much for being here with us today and for your continued courage and, and resilience in being at the forefront of championing democracy in Russia. And we're grateful, as always, to have you as a member of our community, and we hope for your continued safety. Thank you so much, Michelle. Thank you for this conversation. I very much look forward to seeing you and HRF colleagues uh, in Oslo before too long. Thank you. We hope so, too. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please do follow Vladimir on Twitter at vkaramursa and the Human Rights Foundation at HRF. Thank you so much, everyone, for tuning in.